On the occasion of the Lord's Supper, I thought we would take a break from Genesis and hear God's word in Philippians chapter 2. The reading will be 1 through 11. Beloved, let us pray together for God's help. Our God and Father, we come again before your throne of grace upon the occasion of the public reading of Scripture and its preaching. Father, we come and ask for your help this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be a good plowman, that he would break up the fallow ground of our hearts, that he would make the soil of the heart good and ready to receive the good word. And we pray, O Lord, that you would sow that seed among us and that it would take root in our hearts, that it would then spring up and bring forth a harvest of righteousness and fruitfulness, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. O gracious God, stoop low over your field. Summon forth the growth, summon forth life where there is not life, where there is life, nurture it to strength, we pray. Help us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. This is God's word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. When Satan first tempted man in the Garden of Eden, it quickly became clear that the most effective way for Satan to draw man away from God, where man goes willingly, was to offer man a new kind of satisfaction, a satisfaction in man himself. This was the devil's scheme in the Garden. Tempt Adam and Eve to become preoccupied with themselves obsessed with 
what they wanted, captivated by what would make them happy, riveted on what would bring them fulfillment and glory. To get there, Satan lied about the danger of disobeying God. You will not surely die, he said to our first parents. It was the exact opposite of what God had warned. It was a temptation expertly designed by the deceiver. It gave false assurance to Adam and Eve that they would not lose themselves if they did what God forbid. Then Satan pushed their big button. He deceived them by saying God was withholding something precious from them. Satan said God is keeping you from becoming like him. That is why he forbids you to eat of that tree. Genesis 3.5. This lie led Adam and Eve over the edge. They fell into sin. They fell away from God. Now persuaded that nothing other than a fixation upon themselves was good and safe and satisfying. A God-centered existence gave way to a man-centered existence. A hunger for the things of heaven gave way to a hunger for the things of earth. The glory of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, man's need for God, man's duty to God, all of it was replaced with the priority of man. And darkness covered the earth. As man now looked for satisfaction in himself, not in God, the image of the serpent was soon formed in man. Man began to lie to his neighbor, cheat his neighbor, steal from his neighbor, neglect his neighbor, hate his neighbor, kill his neighbor. Lawlessness increased and love grew cold. Children disobeyed parents. Parents despised children. Every man for himself and every man against his neighbor. These were the new rules. These were the new rules of the fallen race of selfish men. Selfish ambition and conceit were now the smart, the good, the safe, the satisfying way to live. Count yourself more significant than others was now a rule for feeling good about yourself. Look only to your own interest was now a rule for pursuing the better life. The corrupt condition of the race of men, the corrupt condition we fell into when we fell from God through our disobedience is summarized perfectly in Titus 3.5. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Now, if you would dare to say, Pastor, I was never like that, I must call you a fool. Because you are now denying your union with Adam. You are now suggesting that you exist in the world without the heritage of the first man. You now suggest you are divine, and you fall into the same condemnation. 
Beloved, this is where the rules of selfishness always lead. When man fills the frame of his life with himself, he does not become better. He becomes worse. When a man's life becomes the most important thing, he becomes the most corrupt thing. So corrupted does he become that the idea of giving himself away for others becomes a ridiculous idea to him. And that man will hold Christ in contempt, even if it is socially quiet contempt. Others are always less important than the man who fills the frame of his own life. So he thinks. A man ruled by selfishness can never freely give himself up for others. He might be coerced to give up a little something, but he does so only because he thinks it will help him keep the rest. As long as man is cut off in the world, as long as man is alone in the world, as long as man is an orphan in the world, he will always be bound to a lust for himself. Always. To keep himself. For he himself is his only hope for himself. But we have better things to say. Praise be to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Praise be to God, this lust for self has been broken in the Christian's heart. All who have been given eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ have had the long, the dark dominion of self defeated. How did Christ break the rule of selfishness in us? He did it by breaking all our rules of selfishness himself. As eternal God most high, most holy, without any shadow of sin or any evil in him, Christ had the very best reasons to neglect us, to ignore us, even to oppose us. And it would not have been selfish for him to do so. We never had just reasons to neglect, ignore, and oppose each other. But Christ did. He would have been completely just to leave us sinners alone under God's wrath and curse. He would have been completely just to let us burn ourselves out in the fever of self, which is a fever that belongs to hell. He would have been completely just. But Christ did not leave us alone. He came to us. He came for us. He crossed the great moral distance between God and fallen men and made our debts his own debts. Made our sin his own sin. Made our death his own death. All by making our nature his own. This, of course, is what Paul speaks of in our text this morning in verse 5 through 11. Though Christ was in the form of God in heaven, he did not grasp and cling to his divinity. But he emptied himself, which simply means he lowered himself into our fallen world, adding to his divine nature our human nature, yet without sin. His divinity did not turn into flesh, 
But as God, he did, not, he, did take, he did take our humanity to himself. So he remained equal to the Father as regards divinity, but he became less than the Father as regards humanity. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And what did he then do being found in human form? He suffered for our salvation. He became obedient to the point of death. Death on a cross, the text says. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, hanging on the cursed tree. Our selfishness had earned death and separation. That's what it had earned from God. But Christ in his selflessness offered himself for us in our place. His body, his blood, cleansed us from all our guilt and his resurrected life now fills us by his spirit. So the guilt of our selfishness has been forgiven and its dominion has also been broken all and only through Jesus Christ. Now because of this lowly redeemer, it should be easy to plead with you all to grow strong in the heavenly graces of self-demoting, self-emptying servitude. Do you know how easy it should be to plead with a group of Christians to grow strong in self-demoting, self-emptying servitude? It should be so easy because the very thing that makes you Christian The very thing that unites you with other Christians is a self-demoting, self-emptying servant son of God. It should be a piece of cake to persuade you all to become the most lowly, servant-hearted, self-demoting people. It should be a piece of cake, right? Because of the divine son's humiliation, Because of the divine son's servitude for you, it should be easy to plead with you to push the self out of the frame again and again. And whenever you look over in the frame and you see yourself in the middle of it again, you go and push yourself out. Get out of there. It should be easy to bring you to that strength. Who should be in the frame? I'll tell you who the very ones who were in the frame when Jesus Christ emptied himself and pursued those souls. That's who should be in the frame. The church of Jesus Christ. They are the recipients of the self-emptying, self-demoting servitude that you are called to because you are a worshiper and adorer of the self-emptying, self-demoting servant son, Jesus Christ. If you are outside of the church today, if you are outside of the church of Jesus Christ, it is a testimony to your soul today that you, right now, do not love what Jesus loves. But if you are in the church, it's possible to be just like those who are outside of it. 
Beloved, you see it in verse 1. Paul is pleading. He's pleading. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, do you have any? Do you have Christ? You have much. If you have Christ, you have all. Paul is saying, I am assuming you believers have experienced this lowly Redeemer God for yourself in such a way that the only way to describe your experience is in the terms of great bounty and great blessing. Encouragement, comfort, participation, affection, sympathy. All of these are experiential words. And Paul is dragging them up and putting them in the boat. The Christian does not just know the facts of the gospel, but the Christian has experienced the meat, the bread, and the wine of the gospel. I'm encouraged that Christ has come for me. I am comforted by the Father's love in choosing me. I have fellowship or participation with the Holy Spirit who assures me, convicts me, prods me. I have affection and sympathy from God towards me. It is easy, beloved, is it not, for the Christian to drift away and become dull to our experience of the gospel? while we remain as sharp as a tack in the facts of the gospel? That's easy. This is why Paul is pleading with the Philippians. He knows the fickleness of the human heart. But our hearts easily become bored with the fatness and richness of the gospel. The lowly ministry of Christ to us begins to dissatisfy us because we start wanting more and more of the earth than we do of heaven. We want to be more like ourselves than we want to be like Christ. And of course, we have people around us all the time telling us to be what we want to be and very few telling us to be like he who is at the very foundations of the new heavens and earth, who is a lowly, self-demoting, self-emptying servant son of God. So our hearts grow bored with the fatness of the gospel. So we wake up and suddenly our priorities sound like these, old selfish lusts. Do these sound familiar, perhaps? You know where I found these? You're about to hear them. I found them in here, in the heart of your pastor. Do these sound familiar to you? I want to feel loved for who I am. I want to be pitied for what I've gone through. I want to experience a sense of personal significance. I want to assert my opinions and my desires. I want to feel pleasure in the endless stream of performances that delight my eyes. I want a sense of adventure, excitement, so I experience life as thrilling and moving. 
But what's now missing? Here's what's missing. I want to be a lowly servant like my Redeemer for his church, in his church, because by his lowly servitude, all the very best things that a man or woman could have have come to me, my sin-sick soul. The self claws its way back into the frame, doesn't it? But Christians, we don't throw Jesus out when that happens. We are in the grip of grace, so we somehow try to put Jesus and ourselves in the frame. We now want Jesus to serve the ascendant self. What we really need to hear, though, is something very much like what Ed Welch said in his great book, When People Are Big and God is Small. Dr. Welch says this, Christ is sometimes not enough for us. If I stand before him as a cup, waiting to be filled with psychological satisfaction, I will never feel quite full. Why? First, because my lusts are boundless. By their very nature, they cannot be filled. Second, because Jesus does not intend to satisfy my selfish desires. Instead, he intends to break the cup of psychological need, lust, not fill it. Jesus does not intend to meet our needs. He intends to change our needs. And to see then that they have been met in the self-demoting, self-emptying servant son of God on the cursed tree. Christ in his love for his elect will always keep us dissatisfied with self so we can only be satisfied with his lowly, humiliating service to us sinners. And you want the perfect diagnostic to see how satisfied you are in the lowly, self-emptying, self-emptying, humiliating service of Jesus Christ? Do you want a perfect diagnostic to see how satisfied you are in it? Is it your great ambition to be just like him, lowly, self-emptying, self-emptying, humiliating servant, doing the lowest task for the lowest saint, giving yourself away for others in every way possible through Jesus Christ. That's the perfect diagnostic. Now look at verse 2 with me. We heard the plea. Paul makes a plea in verse 2 for what this humiliation looks like, this descent looks like. So he pleads for broadening and deepening unity among believers. He piles up several expressions in verse 2. Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. Basically, these are, these are all slightly different ways of making the same point. Be unified. As the one God has united himself to you, you should unite your heart, your soul, your mind to other Christians in the church. And that will cause you some suffering. That will cause you 
a descent. You cannot be unified with the believers in the church by continuing to think the way you think. Just can't be done. What kind of unity is verse 2 speaking of? Well, be assured, it is not uniformity in secular things. It is not single-mindedness on plaid shirts. I'm pro-plaid. It is not single-mindedness on free-range chicken, tasty. It is not single-mindedness on electric cars or even the proper location of roundabouts. This is not what Paul's talking about. It is a single-mindedness on those things the scriptures bind us to. It is a single-mindedness especially on the gospel and its scripturally sanctioned implications. And we know that it is especially begins with a single-mindedness among us on the priority of the gospel, the place of the gospel, the shape of the gospel. We especially know that's what Paul has in mind in verse 2 because of what he says down in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. And then he begins to speak about the descent of the eternal Son of God. In Philippians 1, verse 27, previous chapter, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. A perfect illustration of Paul's intent in verse 2 is what happened with Philemon. You can read all about it in the book of Philemon in the New Testament. One of Philemon's slaves has run away, a slave named Onesimus. Paul has found Onesimus. Onesimus has become a Christian. And the whole letter of Philemon is Paul's effort to unite Philemon to Paul's mind on the whole matter of a runaway slave who has become a Christian. Beloved, the one mind that we should all be striving for begins with what is the foundational principle that we will do everything that we do. It is the descent, the self-demoting, self-emptying servant, Jesus Christ. So whatever we are going to do, whether it's deal with a runaway slave who has become a Christian, or deal with a new building, or deal with a sickness that sweeps through a country, whatever we are going to be about, it must again have come to us to promote and advance and show forth the self-emptying, self-demoting, suffering servant, Jesus Christ. And we have to be of one mind on that. Or we are laying hold of some other cornerstone that really is no cornerstone. It may be the cornerstone that men didn't reject, but it is the one that God will. Because the one that God has accepted, the one men often reject, is the crucified one. Look at verse 3 with me as well. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Now here, Paul begins with a negative ethic. Do nothing from rivalry or selfish ambition would be a fair translation. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. On both of these, it is my story that fills up my life. My image fills the mirror. Selfish ambition is about self-advancement. Conceit is about self-regard. Selfish ambition has both an active and passive expression in the life. Actively, selfish ambition is, I want things done my way. I want my gifts, my strengths to be recognized as the most effective and worthy gifts. Now, passively, selfish ambition is, well, I'm only going to participate with what I agree with. I'm only going to serve where I am gifted. I'm going somewhere else because these people slow me down. Selfish ambition can show up active and passive. Now, conceit, the King James translates this with the Old English, vain glory. Conceit is a disordered self-assessment. It is assigning glory to ourselves, and it's really one of the oldest lies. We are nothing but trophies of grace. We are certainly not self-made trophies of glory. At our best, we are turtles on fence posts. But conceit says, we are destroyers of worlds, men to be praised. So conceit takes on these interior expressions. I am smarter than the other people in this room. I wouldn't do things that way or that way or that way. How silly. I can't believe they did that. The remedy, count others as more significant than yourselves. Is this not what Christ has done for you? Is this not how he regarded you in his eternal glory? Did he not regard you as more significant than his divinity and the safety of heavenly glory? You are more significant than even his bearing of all the sufferings. He was glad to weep for you and bleed for you. Beloved, the question we should always be asking is, what is my ambition? What is my boast? Is my ambition to see Jesus Christ platformed in whatever I am doing so that people can see a reflection of him in the self-demoting, self-emptying servant, savior? Or is my ambition to see myself platformed? And what is my boast? Is it that I have been served by a lowly redeemer? Or is it that, well, I'm, I'm kind of, I don't really need anybody to serve me. I'm kind of okay. We are called when we are of our right mind and right ambition and right boast to count others as more significant than ourselves. And this, beloved, is only possible as we see Jesus Christ doing this at the headwaters of the new creation. Before any of this language in verse 3 can be effective, 
in the way Paul intends, something has to awaken in us of our true experience with God. That's why he begins as he does with verse 1. He pleads with us to look at what we have experienced with God through the gift of his suffering son. If we look away from the gospel, we will soon drift into selfish ambition and much conceit. Now lastly, verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Beloved, here we find ourselves discovering that what we are called to is not of nature. Supernatural graces are necessary. When you hear that you now have a duty to not only look after your own interests, but to the interests of others, you should feel a certain weight upon your shoulders by that. How can I tend to the life of other people when I can barely find the time and strength and wisdom to tend to my own life? Oh, beloved, you are reading the text rightly if you find that this verse 4 pushes us out to the edges of extremity. You cannot look after the interests of others without the vital living spirit of God working in your life and your heart. The only way you can look out to the interests of others is by faith in Jesus Christ. When you are ever more fascinated and fixed upon his looking out for your interests and him giving himself up for you, securing your future blessedness upon that glorious day of judgment where you are publicly acknowledged and acquitted as a son of God and you are summoned in to the master's house. When you look that he has already secured all of your interests at his great expense, you start to see that the very best thing you have in this life and in the next has come to you by the very principle that verse 4 states so succinctly. The greatest possession you own became your possession because someone named Jesus Christ, the living God, looked out for your interests, not just his own. And that then becomes, as the Spirit fills your heart with it, it becomes the very oxygen of your life. And you soon find that you have an expansion of breathing capacity, of loving capacity, of looking out capacity. And it has come through your faith union with he who is the head and chief and CEO of all looking out for the interests of others. Beloved, I urge you, and I'm confident that it's easy to persuade you, if Jesus Christ, self-demoting, self-emptying, humiliating service to you is the glory to you that I think it is, then I think it is easy this morning to plead with you and persuade you to pursue one-mindedness to pursue the significance of others above yourself, 
to pursue the interests of others, not just your own. I think it's easy to persuade you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has revealed to us in our very own salvation that cornerstone of Christian life. Oh, Lord, we thank you that our apostle is pleading with us to stand upon this cornerstone and how we regard one another in the church. For it is in the church alone that we have this bond. All believers are united and bound around the same self-demoting, self-emptying servant, son, Jesus Christ. His gospel is the webbing, the stitching, the glue that holds the church together. And Lord, we thank you that we have been summoned to platform him in all our ambitions, in all of our boasts. We need this summons because we are often, O oh Lord, we confess, hungering again for the old lust of self. We often again are hungering more for the things of earth than the things of God, than the things of heaven, than the life of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for summoning us. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for so quickly persuading us that these things are right. We thank you that we are even now under this persuasion, united in mind with he who is the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Amen.